action. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about Henry Louis Wallace, who was born on November 4th, 1965 in Barnwell, South Carolina, which is like a really small town and like very local. His mother, um, Lottie Mae Wallace, had given birth to his sister just about three years before him, and her name was Yvonne. He was born without his father around, and as far as the research I did, it seems like both kids had the same father, but either way, the father was already married to um, somebody else and had had an affair with Lottie Mae. And after, either after Wallace was born or right before, he had abandoned Lottie Mae and the kids and went back to his wife. So Henry actually had a pretty rough childhood. Um, he lived with his mother, his sister, and his mother's grandmother, so it was his great-grandmother. Lottie Mae's mom had died when she was, like, really young, and then her dad abandoned her, like, shortly after that. So she had a struggling childhood, too. And then she was the only one who could work in the house with the kids. Um, I'm not sure why his great-grandmother couldn't work. I didn't really find any reasons between that. But I do know that her and Lottie Mae did not get along well and there was a lot of arguments. And Lottie Mae just seemed to have very little patience for the kids. So during their childhood, like, Henry had some accidents when he was, like, learning to be potty trained and she would berate him a lot and like make him feel terrible about it to the point he started like trying to hide all of his pants that he had like peed in or anything and then um she even had a very I don't like this I felt like this was really weird but if she had gotten home from work and she was going to punish the children she'd make them go pick out their own switch like that's kind of an old-timey thing anyways but she was too tired she would make Yvonne and Henry like whip each other and that was, like, really weird to me. That's odd. Yeah. Um, and he also stated later on that he hated having to hurt his sister, that it hurt him more emotionally having to hurt his sister than him getting whipped by the switch. Yeah, I'm sure. So um, they actually, it sounds like they were very close as time went on, um, probably having bonded over, like, the childhood and stuff that they had. So after he started elementary school he started realizing like how much he really wanted to have a father around he like would see all the other school kids having their fathers come to like games and events and spend time with them pick them up from school whatever and his mother was very closed off about answering any questions that he had about his father she would just tell him to stop idling and to go do something so he almost got to meet his father for the first time when he was in sixth grade. He answered a phone call and the man on the other line introduced himself as Henry's father and was excited to meet him, said that he wanted to meet him, he'd always wanted to meet him, and that he would be coming by sometime that week to see him. So the next day, Henry woke up like super early. He skipped school. I'm not sure if his mom knew about that. She might have been working late, whatever, but he skipped school and he sat in her bedroom and watched out the window like watching every single car that came by waiting for his father to show up but his father never showed up and he would later tell um a social worker who did an interview with him how upsetting that was for him and how it scarred him so i don't know i feel like that can be a scarring moment like you know maybe thinking that if your dad comes out of somewhere they could help you with like the really bad poor level that you're in like the poverty and stuff because the house that he grew up in was reportedly very very bad it didn't have plumbing or electricity and apparently their bathroom were just like chamber pots and a water pump so he had a very poor 
level of like living and his house was not good so I'm sure he had some hopes that his father could like swoop in and like take care of the family or something but that never came to be and Lottie Mae never mentioned anything to inv interviewers or reporters about who his father was she never said his name but she did tell reporters at some point that he had died years back so I don't know anything else about him as far as Lottie Mae goes, she also would tell investigators that she did her absolute best trying to raise her kids. I'm sure she had a very tough time doing it too, like being the only sole supporter and trying to do everything she could. But anyway, so after elementary school, Henry goes into high school and his teachers and his classmates adored him. Uh, he was a very well-liked person. He had a good sense of humor. He was outgoing. He was sweet. He was caring. He had good grades. He actually wanted to join the football team, but his mom wouldn't let him shoot. I don't know why that was a thing, but she was just like, no, you're not going to do that. So instead, he ended up joining the cheerleading squad, and he was the only male cheerleader, and I think he might have been the only black cheerleader as well. Most of the cheerleaders like adored him because he was so sweet and caring very very outgoing but there were a couple that didn't like a black guy being on the team or touching them during some of their cheerleading routines but he never let any of that bother him he actually reportedly he went to the coach at one point and said I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable what can I do and they worked it all out but after that he ended up graduating in May of 1983 and he attempted to take a semester at South Carolina State College, but he failed out. And then he took another semester at Denmark Technical College, but he failed out of that one too. And it's not because he didn't have like the smarts to do it. He was actually a very intelligent person, but he had no motivation. I think he knew that he had such a high intelligence level that he didn't feel like he needed to waste his time doing some of that, I guess. And he just didn't have an interest in it. So after that, he ended up taking a job at a local radio station um, for WBAW, and he started calling himself the Night Rider, which a lot of other sources that I've looked into were like, that's really kind of a weird name to call yourself because after like, what's his name? The, 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 the Night Stalker, Stalker they yeah. were like, that sounds so weird. <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely sounds like a serial killer Yeah, name. but everybody that listened to him actually ended up loving his his show because they thought his voice was really cool. They loved his sense of humor, and most of the women would comment that they loved his voice. So during his time of employment there, he ended up trying to steal some CDs, and he was caught red-handed, like CDs in hand, and they were like, hey, you're fired. Put those CDs down. So after that, he didn't really have a future or like any plans, so he ended up jo joining the U.S. Naval Reserve, and he was sent out to Orlando, Florida in December of 1984 for his training. It says he spent eight years in the Navy. I saw one that said eight and another source that said six, so somewhere between six to eight years he was in the Navy. Um, and during his time in the Navy, he actually came back to his hometown of Barnwell, and he married his high school sweetheart, Moretta. They had been like in an on and off relationship for a few years and during their time away from each other she had actually had a child with another man and once they got married Henry actually ended up adopting her child and it was reported that he absolutely loved her child and was very happy but he wanted a child of his own and she did not want to do that. She said she didn't want to have any more children and that became a major issue for them. But after they got married, they both went back to Orlando, Florida with their child. 
where they would stay for a couple more years while he was still in the Navy, but their relationship, I couldn't find an exact year, but I want to say it was 1988, just like less than a year sometime in 1988, they, their marriage failed out. They couldn't make it work. He had also gotten arrested during his time in Florida for attempting to rob a hardware store. And apparently he picked up a drug problem during his time in Florida as well. So I want to say that that might have been part of the reason that they're that plus the child and stuff, their issue not wanting to have a child and wanting to have a child. And then if she's finding out he's getting arrested and doing drugs, she's probably like, hey, I can't do this anymore. I don't blame her. Other than that, there's not much to know about her. She seems to have stayed out of the media and stuff like she doesn't want anything to do with it. I don't blame her. But anyway, so during his time in the Navy, when he got arrested for attempting to break into that hardware store, the Navy had still allowed him to be discharged honorably because up until that point, he had been pretty much a star naval. Okay, so he was so still in the Navy when he, was he did still, that. Yes, oh, he was okay. still in the Navy when he did break into that, and he was still in the Navy when it seems like his drug problem began. As far as I can tell, he never got arrested for anything involving drugs, but he did get arrested for that hardware store incident, and the Navy was like, hey, we can't have that, but you've been awesome up until now, so you can be honorably discharged which would be kind of a mistake later on. But anyway, so he was arrested for that and he did um, he did have probation for that, but he ended up like skipping out on his probation. His probation officer would later tell reporters that he wouldn't come in for some of his mandatory meetings and that when he came back to Barnwell, he was still on probation and waited a couple weeks to even call his probation officer and tell him he had gone back to Barnwell to be living with his mom again. And then at that point, he sent out a, like, some information to the South Carolina um, police to let them know, like, hey, you guys need to keep an eye on him. He's still on probation. Then as time went on, he did the same thing, not going into his meetings, not being checked up on properly. So they were like, hey, we don't want to deal with this. Take him back. So he then, that original probation officer sent out a warrant for his arrest for breaking his probation, but nothing ever came to that until years later. So it literally just sat on a desk in a file for years. And so Florida police put out a warrant to for a probation violation yeah. to extradite him back to Florida? Yeah, South pretty much, yeah. But South Carolina never went out, even though they knew where he was living, nobody ever went out to try to serve him. Nope. Oh. Nope. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I know that, like, during this time, it was the early 90s and stuff, like, like late 80s. So I know that for Charlotte Mecklenburg, they didn't have a lot of police at all during that time. They only had nine homicide detectives, which does become a major part of the case. So I don't know, with Barnwell being such a small town as well. Yeah, they were probably really limited right. with their resources. But what gets crazy is that after he goes back to Barnwell, he's living with his mom. His mom had worked at the textile factory, and she had made a friend who also worked there, lived in the same little neighborhood, Barnwell and everything, who had a young daughter named Tashonda Bethea, who was 17, and Wallace had gotten to know her because they were like family friends. She trusted him because, again, he was a very outgoing, friendly guy, but also their moms knew each other, and she thought everything was fine. She would take rides from him sometimes, and, you know, he would apparently bring her, like, lunch to school because she was still a senior, and he started to develop, like, a crush on her, but she didn't seem to have any plan to reciprocate that. She was probably 17, just thinking, like, oh, I'm getting free food and I'm getting rides, you know, it's fine, like, whatever. But he started to realize over time that she began kind of, like, slightly avoiding her. It's unclear if she was actually trying to avoid him or if she was just a 17-year-old trying to hang out with her friends and maybe not taking rides from him as much. But either way, she did 
take another ride from him at one point in March of 1990. And he then drove her out to like this really secluded uh, area of the woods in Barnwell. And he pulled out a pistol and told her that he wanted her to have sex with him. She didn't want to do that, but, you know, he was threatening her with this pistol, so he raped her, and then he strangled her in the backseat of his car, and within a few minutes, she actually regained consciousness, and so he strangled her again in an attempt to kill her, and finally, she was unconscious again, and then he actually ended up taking a box cutter that he had in his car and slit her throat and her wrists, and then he threw her into the lake in the woods, and... My original thing was, why did he not use the pistol that he supposedly said that he had? Because he reported this to investigators later on as a confession, saying that he had pulled out this pistol. Mm -hmm. But I later found out there was another case where he had used a pistol the same way, kind of, but then was like, haha, it was just a BB gun. So I'm thinking that's probably the same situation. It was a BB gun that he made look like an actual weapon to scare them, but couldn't really do any severe damage to use for. How old was he at that time? Um, at that time, he was, I think he was 24. Yeah. He should have been about 24, 25 at that point. And then he threw her body in the lake and then he went on his way. He did his own thing. He detail cleaned out his car. Like he must've known. He was a very smart guy. And investigators actually did interview him um, after her body was found, because her body was found about two weeks later by a couple fishermen in the lake, and it was found on April 1st of 1990. And investigators had found out that he had been seen with her the day she had gone missing, and a couple other guys had been seen with her too. They did interviews for all of the guys that had been seen with her, and they had more of a hunch on Wallace, but there was no proof, no evidence. He had cleaned out his car. There was nothing that could connect him to the crime, so her case did end up going cold. Her autopsy also showed it was a very severe murder. I mean, clearly he had tried to strangle her twice and then ended up slitting her wrist and throat, but she was still alive when she went into the lake. So she had not actually been killed beforehand. So I'm just like, this guy seemed, he was a very big guy. I'm like, how did you struggle to strangle someone that much with how big he was? And she was a very small woman. So I was just like, that doesn't, but yeah. So she was still alive when she went in there and most likely couldn't get out probably was still unconscious from the strangling and not to mention the bleeding from here's what i wonder is if there was still when these investigators talked to him about this if there was still that unserved warrant from florida and they just that was my thing too and i could not find any real good information on that but i was like if there's this if you guys already knew he'd been on probation you guys had taken over the probation for even a short period of time and then you made contact Why? with him to question him about a murder. Right. Then, I guess they might have not wanted to go through, like, the time, effort, and money to have him extradited back to yeah. Florida. But it's also, like, maybe if we had done that, none of this other stuff would have happened. Because it gets wild. Because after he killed Tashana, which, by the way, she had just turned 18. She had just had her 18th birthday, like, a week or two before he had killed her, which was, like, really sad because she was so young. And she wouldn't be the only 18-year-old that actually fell victim to Henry Wallace. But after the slaying of Tashana Bethea, he ended up moving back to, or not back to, but he moved to Charlotte. And that was in November of 1991, a little over a year after he had killed Tashonda. 
and he started working a bunch of different jobs, different fast food restaurants. Um, he worked at a Bojangles, the Bojangles that was on North Sharon Amity Road, where he ended up meeting his girlfriend, Sadie McKnight. And then after that, he switched to Taco Bell and became an assistant manager at the Taco Bell on Central Avenue. So he had a lot of employees, but he became friends with a lot of them very quickly because, again, he was just so well-liked. He was so good at just becoming everybody's friend. He was seen to be such a consoling person and comforting person that everybody just trusted him immediately. And he became very close with a lot of his employees and some of Sadie McKnight's employees that worked with her. So in May of 1992, about six months after he'd moved to Charlotte, he had met a woman named Sharon Nance, who was 33. She is one of, I think, two different victims that actually did not work with him or his girlfriend. The rest of all the victims did have a connection through the employment, but she was actually a sex worker and she had a history of drug charges. I'm only mentioning that because it was mentioned in every post that I ever saw about her, so it doesn't really have anything to do with it, but it might have something to do with why her case wasn't immediately like considered very much of a big deal. Either way, she um, was a mother and her son was eight years old at the time of May 1992 and her family would later tell reporters that she had a huge love of writing poetry, she would love to draw and over everything else she just loved her son. She would do anything for her son. So she actually lived with her aunt at the time and she had told her aunt one night that she was going to be going out and that you know she'd be back in a few hours again this is the early 90s cell phones are not a thing like this is i mean they kind of are but not very popular and not for the poor areas and stuff so she ended up leaving that night and wallace met her and they engaged in a sexual intercourse deal and then afterwards she asked for her payment and he had no intention of paying her and instead used a rock that was somewhere nearby and beat her head in and killed her and then left her on the side of some railroad tracks. And then her aunt did file a police report because she knew that her and Sharon had a very close communication level that Sharon told her I'd be back in a few hours and ended up not coming back. She got worried. She did file the police report and they did end up finding her so her body was found just a couple weeks after she had been murdered by a work crew and immediately police came on the scene and they checked everything out. They could tell it was a dump site because there was no evidence of a crime actually occurring right there. But her skull was fractured in multiple places and there were several injuries to her face, her nose and jaw especially. But again, they found no evidence, nothing that they could use, and DNA was still in its infancy, so there wasn't a lot that they could really do. And they had a massive backlog of evidence for DNA processing at the time, too. So her case actually went unsolved for another two years until his confession. And they had no idea that she was even a victim of his. So her body was found a couple weeks after she had been murdered by a work crew. Um, they contacted police and they came out there they realized it was just a dump site there was no evidence of the crime occurring there and they sent her body in for the autopsy where they revealed that she had multiple fractures in her skull and multiple injuries to her face with her nose and jaw specifically so 
over that time period, they had no evidence that they could really use for her case, and it just went cold for about two years until his confession in 1994. So after her murder... Do we know where her murder actually occurred? I'm not sure. I couldn't find anything. I want to say it was either some kind of, like, maybe a motel or something, but from the fact that he had grabbed a rock, I'm assuming that maybe it had the sexual part of that night had occurred maybe in a car and then when they were getting out or separating or something that's when she's like hey you need to pay me and he was like no i'll just grab this rock yeah so it seems more like it was just some secluded area or something and then he drove her body to the railroad tracks Mm -hmm. so after he had killed sharon nance he didn't waste much time and he ended up going over to caroline love's apartment who was a 20 year old woman and she was actually the roommate of wallace's girlfriend at the time sadie who they actually worked together as well sadie and caroline at the bojangles so he had met caroline during the time he had also briefly worked at bojangles but had gotten to know her more over time from spending time with his girlfriend at her apartment and then being roommates and stuff and had even become friends himself with caroline so he had actually made a copy of the key to the apartment without either woman knowing and had kept that copy so on june 14th of 1992 he had gone over to their apartment while neither of them were home and i don't know what he was doing but when caroline got home he heard her come in the door and he was in the bathroom so he called out to her and was just like hey i'm here i'm in the bathroom not to scare her or anything and just give her a heads up and she was just like, oh, okay. He's like, yeah, I'm going to leave as soon as I'm done. So then he comes out. She had started watching TV and she was sitting on the sofa. The way that the apartment seemed to be set up was that when he came out of the bathroom, the sofa was facing away. So her back was turned to where he came out from. And he walked up behind the sofa and kissed her on the cheek. And she was like kind of uncomfortable and immediately was like, hey, I won't tell Sadie about this, but promise not to do it again. So I guess he didn't like that. And he ended up wrapping his arms around her from behind like where he was standing on the sofa and around her neck to grab like a chokehold on her and he would call it a wrestling move apparently he really liked to watch wrestling so he used what he called the boston choke on most of his victims and that is what he had done to caroline and there was some kind of scuffle is what he would call it that occurred between him and caroline and she actually started trying to scratch his arms and his face to get out of the chokehold but he ended up rendering her unconscious and he moved her body to the bedroom where he tied her up and raped her during the attack she actually began to regain consciousness and he strangled her again He would later tell police that he knew she still was alive because he could feel her pulse, so he continued to choke her until he said that her body had gone limp and he was sure that she was dead. So then he took her body and stuffed it into a, like, really large orange trash bag and took her body to a secluded, like, wooded area where he dumped her body and it stayed for two more years. Caroline's sister, Kathy, actually worked at the Bojangles with Sadie and Caroline. And um, she had taken off three days from work starting on June 15th to celebrate her birthday. And she went back to work after her days off and her manager had said, hey, your sister hasn't come in for the last three days. Like, what's up with that? And she was immediately very concerned. She was like, that's not like my sister. I'm also wondering, like, why was your sister not hanging out with you on your birthday, though? Like, what y'all doing? Like, I don't know. I thought that was like, but I don't know if she yeah, went that somewhere. that was my immediate thought. But maybe, she, you know, if she had 
you know, a husband. Yeah, well, and if Caroline just needed to work because she couldn't afford to take the time off like Kathy could, but either way, so... the boss was probably thinking, oh, what a coincidence that you took these days off and now your sister wasn't here either. I thought that too. I was like, maybe he was confronting her to be like, did she just not come in because she wanted to spend time with you on your birthday or something or what, but... Either way, Kathy knew that that was weird because she was like, I haven't had any contact with her and she was very adamant about getting to work and doing her job and making her money. So she actually went to the apartment that Caroline Love lived at with Sadie and she couldn't find her. She didn't get an answer on the door or anything. So she filed a missing persons report immediately. Where has Sadie been this whole time? She didn't notice her roommates missing for three days? I don't know. There was nothing I could really find about that. And Sadie herself has always stayed out of the media coverage and stuff. She did her interviews with police. They never thought she had anything to do with it. But other than that, she's never done real news reports or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So her side of the story has always been kind of not around. But... Either way, so Kathy had talked to Sadie herself, and Sadie said she hadn't seen her, and so Sadie, Henry Wallace, and Kathy were the three people who went to the police department to file the missing persons report. So he literally killed her, and then three days later was like, I'll help you file the missing persons report, and then proceeded to also, like, console Kathy by, like, rubbing her shoulder, like, you know, comforting her, whatever, knowing what he had done and where he had left that body and everything. He did all of that, and that was just... He was probably getting off on that, too. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that a lot of this became a thing that was a control thing for him. He had control. He had power. And he seemed to just love that part. So, after they had filed the missing persons report, they noticed that the apartment was pretty much normal. They didn't see any overturned furniture or anything. The scuffle had never gotten that bad. Mm -hmm. And there were no signs of a robbery. So, there was not much for them to go on thinking that there was a good motive yet they just knew that she had disappeared and she would just stay as a missing person for the next two years so after he had killed caroline love he had gone over to shauna hawk's apartment or house i think it was an actual house that one but um shauna hawk was very young she was 20 years old and she worked at the taco bell with him while she also took classes at central piedmont community college and she was a godmother to a little boy who was named german i think is how it's pronounced but i could be wrong um and so she actually did a lot of taking care of him she every morning it seems like she would take him to daycare and then pick him up and then while his mom worked and then his mom would get him from her so the morning of february 19th 1993 about eight months after he had killed Caroline Love, he had gone over to Shauna's house after she had left work and she'd already dropped off Jermon at daycare and she had taken her classes and stuff. And I think this was just the time frame that she had of free time before she had to go pick up Jermon and he had stopped by. And again, he was friends with like all of these women. So they didn't think it was too strange for him to just stop in and say hey and stuff. So he had come in, they hung out, they talked for a little while and everything seemed normal he got up to leave and she went to give him a hug like a hug goodbye like see you later whatever and that is when he wrapped his arms around her throat and got hurt in a chokehold actually i'm sorry that happened after they were in the hug and then he said i want you to have sex with me and she was like no and then he got her in the chokehold so so it's every time he's rejected so far yeah pretty much and he would later report that once he got the victim to hug him, that was his best position to get them in the chokehold mm. because he had, I guess, just the best stance there. So usually it was the hug meant you were going to get into the chokehold. So he um, 
ended up taking her to her bedroom and he this part gets kind of graphic but I did want to report it I considered not but he it, it gives more detail to how disgusting he was he told her that he wanted her to give him oral sex and she told him she didn't know how to do that and he said well you're gonna learn and then he proceeded to like force her and then he raped her and afterwards he told her to put her clothes back on she did and then he took her to the bathroom where he strangled her until she was unconscious and he filled the bathtub up with water and put her body in the bathtub with all of her clothes on and everything and closed the shower curtain and then he left after he took $50 out of her purse and her car keys. And he took her car and he drove it to the Central Piedmont campus where he would abandon it there. I'm not really sure why he did that with the car. Like, it was never really explained why he felt the need to do that because she lived with her mom. So it's like... They're going to see her body in the bathroom. going to find like... her regardless. So I don't really know why he took her car. But either way, it's... It says that it happened between 1 to 5 p.m. that he had killed her. And around 5.15, Shauna's mother, Dee, um, she's actually very prominent in this case. Her name is Dee Sumter. She pulled into the driveway to get home from work. And she immediately noticed that her daughter's car wasn't there. And she's like, that's a little weird. She probably should have been home by now. But either way, she went inside. She saw that Shauna's coat was still there that she had seen her leave with that morning. And her purse. And she was kind of like, that's weird. She must be here, like but her car's not here. She went around looking for her, but she didn't find her. And so then the phone rang and it was Shauna's boyfriend, Daryl. And he was like, hey, have you heard from Shauna? And she was like, no, I actually haven't. That's really weird because like she's got her stuff here, but her car's not here. I haven't seen her. And then she hears like that beep from the line. It's a landline. It's another call coming in. So she's like, hey, hold on. She answers that. And it's actually Jermon's mom, the little boy that she was the godmother of saying, hey, Shauna never picked him up from daycare. Like, is she good? Like, what's going on? Like, I'm a little freaked out here. So immediately, Dee knew something was off. She was like, that's not like her. She loved that little boy. She would take care of him. She was very responsible. Like, she also started thinking maybe she got into a car accident somewhere. Maybe something happened. Just all these thoughts racing through her brain. So she gets back on the phone with Daryl. She asks him to come over. And it doesn't take long. I think it took five, ten minutes for him to get over there. And he immediately told her that something fell off, like this didn't seem right. You know, they, Shauna was not the kind of person to just have her stuff here, disappear, car gone, whatever. So during that time, Dee is trying to like figure out what her next step is. I don't know if she's planning to call the police or if she doesn't think she should yet, or if she's thinking maybe there's somebody else she could call to check in where she's at. Either way, she's going through her thoughts, her process while Daryl, the boyfriend, starts going through the house and he's just kind of double checking, like making sure she's not somewhere. And he goes in the bathroom and he opens the curtain and he screams, like a scream that Dee Sumter would later recall that she can never forget. And immediately heard him shout to her, Sean is in the bathtub, call 911, the water's cold. So, of course, he kept Dee from going into the bathroom, it sounds like. He didn't want her to see that. And they called 911. When they got there, Shauna was not dead. They started CPR immediately, trying to resuscitate her. And they took her to the hospital, but she was pronounced dead at the hospital. So during that time, CMPD had started, you know, surveying the scene, kind of processing everything, checking for any kind of evidence that they could. But they did notice that there seemed to be like those wipe marks that you can see from like a wet cloth or something on the faucets and the counter of the bathroom. And they could tell that somebody had tried to wipe down spots in the house, like where their fingerprints would have been. So they weren't able to find much evidence at all. And 
her case ends up going cold, just like the rest of them. They never put it together that she was working at Taco Bell or asked some of their friends or anything. She was actually friends with some of the victims, too, so it's just... Over time, you start to realize how close all of these victims were to each other and to Henry Wallace. And I know that they only had like nine homicide detectives at the time, but it's just like so many connected connecting dots that it just didn't make sense. And a lot of the families would later say that they felt like if their their family members who were victims had been white, that maybe the case could have been handled differently. Gary McFadden was one of the acting homicide detectives and he was a black man, but at the same time, it's, he has to do what he's told to. And honestly, there was a lack of evidence. So I don't believe that it was always done in a mean manner. Like, I don't think they were purposely trying not to solve the crimes, but I don't think they were doing as much as they could have done because they definitely didn't interview people that they could have that probably would have led them to Wallace a lot sooner. So they were unable to recover any DNA evidence from Shauna because she was in the bathtub? Or? So they sent her, I know that they sent rape kits out for a lot of the victims, but the backlog was so long that none of those results even came back for until after he had been arrested and confessed. So it took months, like a couple years for some of these results to come back because they said that they had thousands of backlogged DNA lab kits sent back so it took ages for them to get anything but once it did come back they did have dna evidence of that was consistent with him but he would also later tell police he purposely would have his victims clothed again so that they wouldn't see it as a sexually motivated crime and do a rape kit but police usually would anyways because certain things kind of led to that so d's mother was actually she is a beautifully strong woman because after her daughter's death and it was her only daughter she had three sons but shauna was her only daughter and she absolutely adored shauna and shauna was also the kind of person she was just very down to earth like there was a comment that somebody had made during a news report that shauna was not the kind of person who wanted to look like a what's the word i'm looking for she was just very down to earth. Like during her junior prom, she had some like fake plastic nails on. And before she even got to prom, they said that she had ripped them off and thrown them out. She didn't like it. She was like, not that kind of person. She was in a very beautiful, like blue dress though, but she wasn't the kind of person that wanted all that extra stuff. She just wanted to be pretty and on her own, you know? So um, her mom, Dee Sumter, had been over at her, Shauna's godmother's house, um, her best friend, Judy's. And it was about a month after Shauna had been killed and she was just in tears. Like she couldn't get over it. Like, I mean, what mother could, but especially it's, it hasn't been that long. And Judy was like, you should look at support groups or even making your own support group or something that might help you with your coping and, and get some support from others who've gone through the same thing. Judy, of course, also was going through her own mourning. She also adored Shauna, but it's not the same as an actual mother, you know, too. So. That is when Dee Sumter and Judy Williams founded Mothers of Murdered Offspring, which she abbreviates to Mom O, or Mom. Um, The organization is still very prominent in Charlotte today, and she uses it as a great way to help support other women that have gone through the same thing, and they try to go out there and support them, give them whatever they can, and it's a very tight-knit like group, and it very quickly started gaining members in that group. and it was about eight weeks after that 
that she had, after the Shauna had been murdered, that police found her car at the Central Piedmont campus. I don't know why it took eight it weeks. It took eight weeks to find her vehicle at the school that she attended. Right. I'm like, why wouldn't that be like one of the first places you kind of check, like the like that, and maybe her workplace? And I also, I'm just like, does does the campus not have a security guard that goes through and noticed that it had been there for more than a week or two in the same spot? Like, there they even said that there was a layer of dust over it. So I'm just like. Why did it take that long? But either way, they found no evidence from her car. Fingerprints had been wiped down, everything. So there was nothing that they could really gather from the car. But they did notice that the seat was pushed all the way back. And Shauna was only 5'2". So they immediately knew that the killer had driven it there. Which, I mean, obviously, because there's no way that she left her car and then walked herself back to home. home. Right, I'm like, so we knew that, but... Either way, it definitely confirmed it for them that the killer was definitely a tall person. Were they focused on her boyfriend at all? They did, actually. They did look into him. They thought that he was a suspect for a little bit, but quickly that fizzled out. They realized that he had nothing to do with it. He was also very distraught over it and was having his own mourning process and stuff. So they did interview him a couple times, but nothing ever came of that, and they realized he had nothing to do with it. So... One thing that Dee wrote to a newspaper was exactly one year after Shauna's death, she wrote to the local newspaper trying to contact the killer. So she wrote, quote, Dear killer, I am the mother of Shauna Denise Hawk. I'm writing to you because you murdered my only daughter in our home on February 19th, 1993, between the hours of 1 p.m. and 5 p.m. I find it so hard to believe that an entire year has gone by since that horrible Friday evening. When Shauna's dead body was discovered in the bathtub where you put her, I do not hate you for what purpose that would serve. However, I do want you to come forth and confess to this horrible atrocity that you have committed. And, end quote. She published that to the newspaper exactly one year and one day, and it just gave me, like, shivers, because she actually read it herself during some of her interviews. She's still very prominent out there talking about her daughter's case and everything and getting people to be part of her group of support and stuff, so... When she read that, I was just like, that's so sad. Like, it really destroyed her, losing her daughter. I mean, it would destroy anybody. But she overcame all of it and put all of her strength and hope into the support group. And she just wanted to do what she could to get the best out of the situation. So, after that, we are going to move on to June twenty second, 1993. About four months after Shauna's murder, Wallace had gone over to Audrey Spain's apartment that evening and Audrey was 24. She had graduated from Horry Georgetown Technical College and then she moved to Charlotte from her hometown of Bayboro, South Carolina. And there are a couple indiscrepancies in some of the reports I found. It said that she worked together with Wallace at Taco Bell, but Wallace confessed to police that he had gone to her apartment with the idea of robbing her It just gets complicated, but we'll get into it. So he had gone to her apartment originally wanting to rob her and they ended up smoking some weed and then he ended up getting her in a chokehold and demanding him, demanding her to tell him the combination to the safe box at her work. This is where I get confused because if she worked at Taco Bell, he was an assistant manager. He should have already known that. So that's where I'm kind of confused if she did work there or if she was instead maybe a Bojangles employee or something. But I was confused. Or maybe she had transferred to a different Taco Bell or he might have lost his job at this point, but I don't think he had. 
Either way, that part confused me and I could not find any details to iron that out. So that got a little confusing, but moving off of that, she told him that she didn't know the combination and he told investigators that she had pleaded with him to not hurt her, hurt her and he continued the choke hold until she lost consciousness. He then took her body to the bedroom and raped her. After that assault, he took Audrey into the bathroom and placed her in the tub where he like washed off any evidence. And then he took her back into the bedroom, redressed her and tied a t-shirt and a bra around her neck using one to kind of secure the other with a double ligature. And before he left her apartment, he took her keys and one of her debit cards, which he would later use to buy gas with, but that was like the only thing he used that card for. So the next day, Audrey was scheduled for a shift at Taco Bell and she didn't show up. Another manager, Mark, he said that he had a weird feeling and he was just, he was like, this isn't Audrey, she doesn't do this. So he ended up going to her apartment, driving by her apartment, and he saw that her car was still there. He called and left a voicemail. She never called back. The next morning, um, she was scheduled again and she still hadn't returned his call. And he said that he saw her car was still there in the same spot. He had driven by again and he decided to call Audrey's sister. I'm not sure how he got that contact information. Maybe it was like her employment, like maybe an emergency contact. Exactly. So either way, he called her and left a voicemail for her sister expressing concern and saying that, you know, it was out of character for Audrey, but his, her sister also never returned the call. So at that point, after she didn't come in for her, previous two shifts, Mark had still received no response from Audrey or the sister, and he decided he was going to contact the police himself. Police did do a couple drive-bys, and they tried to knock on the door a few times, but they never got an answer. So after that, the third day after she was killed, a maintenance worker for the complex had gone into the apartment, and it's, I don't know if he had gone in because there was an issue with her, like, not paying rent and he was going to check on her or if he had gone in to let somebody else in the the detective that maybe came in to do a welfare check it's kind of unclear but he did go in i don't think that the detective was actually involved quite yet because he had to call 911 himself so i take that back he went in and he did discover her body in the bed and he called 911 they came out processed the scene during that time, Mark had actually driven by her complex again. I think it might have been on his way to work because he seemed to kind of go by there pretty often. Or he might have just been driving by to check out her area again. But either way, he'd seen the police cars there and he decided to stop in and talk to investigators. And that's when they did inform him that they had found her body. So the day after her body was discovered, the autopsy report showed that her cause of death was strangulation. But police were unaware of any prior connections to any of the previous victims. So they had nothing that they could go on. Again, evidence was very scarce. They didn't have any fingerprints that they could find. They didn't have DNA that could easily come back quickly enough. So so did she work with Shauna? She, yes, she worked with Shauna and Shauna worked at Taco Bell. Shauna actually had previously worked at Bojangles but had taken a job at Taco Bell. Um, I guess she was getting paid a little bit more there. Um, so Shauna had actually worked with Caroline Love, Sadie McKnight, and a couple of their victims that happened in the future. So they literally are all connected. 
I would figure, I, I would assume, I, I know maybe not on the previous ones, and maybe not start connecting the dots then, but I would think right here at this one, I, I would think is where you would start like, yeah. connecting the dots. Because I, th- I thought the same thing, like maybe not the first two, it could just be a coincidence yeah. or it could be something that's too far off, but once it becomes, there's a total of like nine to ten victims and, and seven. This was only like four months after Shauna? Yeah, this is all happening in a 22 month time span. All of these murders happen within 22 months, this aside from Tashana. Exactly. And you would think that, and I know that there were different detectives handling different parts of the case because they couldn't connect them to know that it was one murderer killing all of these women. So they didn't give it to just one or two detectives. It was all considered independent cases. So different detectives were handling different cases. But I'm like, do you guys not have like a meeting where you guys sit down every month and you're like, hey, let's connect some dots. Like, do you guys have you, anything? Anybody murdered at Bojangles recently or disappeared or anything? And it's like... Don't worry about anybody else murdered in the city of Charlotte. Just worry about this one case. I'm just saying, like, did we, like, where's the, where's the, like... There's only nine of them. You would think that they'd communicate a little bit. Like, it's not like you've got a huge amount of detectives that you have to try to communicate with. But that is going to mark the end of the first part of the Henry Lewis Wallace case. And we hope that you guys enjoyed listening to part one. And if you guys are interested, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcast, or our Instagram, all linked in the show notes. And stick around for part two.